live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are back with a brand new series this week. I believe you've just returned from Italy, haven't you? Yes, a trip to Bologna, Ferrara, Padua, and a frustrating drive to the airport in Venice. It's bizarre. I was there two and a half years ago on a pretty similar trip, had the same experience. Coach driver is clueless when it comes to Venice Airport, drops us off miles away from departures. And yet you made the flight just about? Just about, yes. Wow. So we're keeping with the Italian theme, and today we're going to be discussing Venice. Venice and the Venetian Republic. Um, When you think of Venice, you think of canals, you think of the ghetto, because as many will know, the word ghetto was created with regards to Venice in 1516. And possibly uh, the first name that pops into your head is Shylock from Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. Shylock is, of course, the the Jewish moneylender, not the merchant in question. Um, And it's written in the late 1590s, which is about a century after the ghetto was created, in which case you'd be justified in thinking, hang on a minute, how were Jews trading with Christians and his daughter is off spending money in Genoa? Weren't they all closed off in a ghetto at the edge of an island? Shouldn't Shakespeare have set the play a hundred years earlier? That's the exact question going through my head. Whenever I think of Venice, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. <laughs> right. Well, it was definitely in Shakespeare's head, but quite surprisingly, far from Venice being the typical ghetto, Venice was the exception in many ways to ghetto life. It gave its name to the concept of a ghetto, but in many ways it wasn't one. Of course, they were gated in, and yes, they were secluded. But in terms of purpose, uh, function, Venice doesn't fit the mould. It's not Frankfurt or Rome. I'll give you an example. Um, Most ghettos were in the centre of town because the purpose of a ghetto wasn't simply to isolate the Jews, but to have them surrounded by churches and force them to attend sermons and eventually convert them. But none of this is the case in Venice. It's at the edge of town, basically. There are no churches. You know, you compare it to Bologna or Vienna. In, in Jewish collective memory, the ghetto is the symbol of Jews as outcasts in a hostile society. Although it's difficult to associate the sort of the streets and the canals of the Venetian ghetto with those memories. It is different. I mean, it was still a forced area of residence, no? And in a Christian country, a Christian continent. But when the ghetto of Venice was first established in 1516... Look at the rest of Western Europe. It's expelled its Jews altogether. You know, England in 1290, France originally 1306, Spain 1492. Now, originally, obviously, Venice had been against admitting any Jewish residents. There were the the priests protecting the faithful from contamination. So what happened? Money. 
uh, trade. <laughs> Who would have thought? Um, in historical context, the ghetto allowed the Jews into the city as a compromise between two opposing forces. The entry for Jewish merchants and a possibility for them to help the city, but they need to be in an enclosure to keep them apart. And because the Venetian Republic was above all a trading nation, they were prepared to accommodate religion somewhat. Christianity, of course, is always there, but money is of prime importance. I mean, it's, an, it's ironic because given the role of the Jew in Shakespeare's play, you know, he demands his pound of flesh from the money that he's lent, there is actually probably no place of Jewish residence in the world which will be so obviously and openly linked to money but linked to money by the local governing bodies, not by the Jews. And given the hotel prices, which are horrendous, I would say very little has changed. <laughs> so the, the creation of the ghetto in 1516 coincides with a commercial decline in Venice, Portuguese expansion in the Indian Ocean, and you things like spices and textiles. They, they used to arrive on caravan routes from Egypt, from Syria. Now, ships sail around the Cape of Good Hope and they get much further, they get to Lisbon, they get to Antwerp and you have the English and Dutch ships around. So Venice needs merchants and it needs moneylenders, which means that just as Shakespeare was writing his play, the Venetian government was granting unique privileges to Jewish merchants in Venice. Um, so maybe the full title for today's podcast is something like uh, the Jewish Merchants of Venice, the Ottoman Empire, Money, the Iberian Diaspora. It uh, sort of rolls off the tongue. <laughs> but first, let's have a look at Jewish residents in Venice in the first place, uh, pre-Gum-Gum restaurant. It's not documented, but there's an <laughs> assumption. So when and why? For many years, it is assumed that the Jews were on the Venetian scene in the 12th century. There's a census of 1152 that mentions 1,300 Jews living in the city, and it is assumed that the island called uh, Gideka is named because of the Jews living there, and some historians even say that by law all Jews in Venice had to reside on the island. And there's tax legislation requiring Jews in Venice to pay 5%. So, you know, all in all, a pretty strong case. However, nowadays, various academic articles prove that all of these are completely wrong. The census isn't 1152, it's 1552. The customs legislation of 1290 is about Jewish commerce of a Venetian-owned territory, but it's off the coast of Greece, and there is no evidence whatsoever that Jews ever lived on the Gideka, if only, then they could have owned the Cipriani. <laughs> and by way of note, Italy was, of course, not a single country. It wasn't unified until 1861. So it's a patchwork of republics, of duchies, of, uh, well, the, the papal lands, of course, the amount of Jews in the country is small, relatively. In the country, and therefore in any one city or town, not just then, but all the way through the, the centuries. It's always small populations, 
And Venice starts off as many cities in northern Italy in a typical style where a few Jews come to seek their fortunes. From the south, you have Italian Jews. And in every town or region, they negotiate a charter to set up a, a bank to lend to local citizens at uh, favorable rates. And this is done for a fixed number of years. And in return, they are guaranteed rights, residential privilege. They can open a shul, a cemetery, and they can bring along a number of people, to, whether to work in their bank or to serve in their household or teach their children. So each small community starts from a, a court centered around the banker. So, so when did this happen? This starts from the 13th century onwards and typically continues for the next 200 years. Firstly, as I said, the Italians, but then in greater numbers, you have Ashkenazi Jews from German-speaking countries north of the Alps about a century later in the 1400s. They come to the mainland of Veneto, in particular Mestre, in fact, the Maharik, Rebus of Cologne, lived there, and there was a Kahila in that town into the 20th century. Whereas to Venice, the island, we really know only from 1329 onwards, there's a Jewish doctor who's allowed to practice medicine in the city, might not have been there for that long, though. However, there is a unique set of circumstances in Venice which would work in the Jews' favor. Legislation starting in 1254, which would continue for at least 100 years, uh, you were not allowed to borrow money against a, a pledge at a fixed rate of interest. It was illegal. And if you wanted to do so, uh, you had to go to the mainland. But then uh, Venice, like most of Europe, goes through the Black Plague in 1348, and then they have a war against Genoa. And by 1355, the Venetian government breaks with past tradition and allows lending at a rate of uh, 10 to 12% a year in the city. So that was lending from the Jews? Yes. Well, the original legislation doesn't refer specifically to Jewish moneylenders, but all of them actually were Jews, with the exception of one Christian, and he had three Jewish partners. So basically, three years later, there still isn't a lot of money around, so it's desirable to keep the Jews. And this time there's a new charter, and it does mention the Jews specifically. And it says that for the good of the city, the Jews in Venice should stay, and they even invite others to come and live there. And they have a five-year uh, grace period, and that they should be given a place to live. Not so much to segregate them, but ironically, in order to encourage them to come, they can live amongst their own. So, you know, that's a bit of a, a role reversal when we think of a ghetto and in Venice itself. But this is 1358. This is 150 years before the, so to speak, real thing. And they are even given a cemetery. It's originally a vineyard on Lido on the island just off the coast of Venice itself. And that's still there? 
Yes, yeah, the basic chorus is still there. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I've traipsed through it. Uh, although bits and pieces were taken at certain stages by uh, people building palaces near it or by the government. Uh, but in the main, it, it is, yeah. And is there anyone there. there of note? Yes, there are people there of note. So you don't uh, hear many people going to Venice and going to the basic chorus there? Um, I would say they are of note, but perhaps um, not... To the trained in, uh, historian. No, not only that, it would not be the type of people um, that would excite the average tour. In other words, uh, to fill a tour to uh, Lido. Right. It, it's a they different type very, of personality. They must be very old, though. Well, it, yes, it starts back in the, in the, in the mid-1300s um, and is in use for at least 400 years. And when they are invited into Venice, you now see perhaps what you could call Jewish seichel, you know, Jewish business sense playing itself out. Because, first of all, the Jews are given the choice. They can pay the treasury 4,000 ducats a year and lend at a rate of 10%, or not pay any annual sum, but then they can only lend at the lower rate of 8%. And the Jews choose the lower rate. But, of course, they've got a problem because they're only getting 8% interest. So what's the angle? From the rich, there is a way to charge 10%, not against pledgers. And now the amounts borrowed, because these are wealthy people, are going to be much higher, which brings better returns than lending the poor. Which is great but it's not plain sailing because the city of venice invites the jews to help both sectors and the jews at least allegedly are refusing to lend any money to the poor people so tensions arise and <coughs> excuse me jews are also accused of accepting pledges from bishops and other church figures of um, altarpieces, chalices, uh, church furnishings, and when these are not redeemed, when they didn't get paid back, they sell them in the marketplace. So these holy relics are ending up being traded, and Jews are now perhaps more trouble than they're worth. And it's possible, it's very possible, that some Jews did get too greedy and mess things up for everybody. Was there any rabbinic oversight at this time? It's very small. I mean, they might have been invited in, but they're only invited in if they are in a position to lend money. So there's no communal setup, as we'll see, no rabbinic oversight. And it's a small group, you know, maybe 20 lenders with their entourage, but there, there are 20 figures that we focus on. And therefore, even if Venice is about money for the city, the money does need to help the city. And Jews can't be seen to openly disrespect Christ, uh, you know, Christianity. So this must have caused a big backlash, I'm guessing. Yep. The Senate passes legislation that Jewish moneylenders have to leave the city. They're being kicked out. It takes six years to pass this legislation because the Venetians only do it when their own economy is in a better place. You know, to never lose sight of the real goal. <laughs> and they call the Jews money-minded. Uh, but from then on, no Jew could stay in Venice for more than 15 days at a time. They had to wear a clearly visible sign. Even the Jewish doctors who didn't engage in money lending. Now, Venice doesn't have a policy of totally and permanently excluding Jews from the city because you never know if you're going to need them. Um, 
Now here, second piece of uh, Jewish uh, seichel, I guess, they get around it at first anyway, because yes, they stay in Venice for 15 days, they take a boat to the mainland to Mestre, and then they come back. You know, it's like in the olden days in, in Israel when you had to renew your car or your residency. So you went to Cyprus or Tubba and, you know, on the Egyptian border. I'm, I'm guessing they eventually figured out the trick, you know? Yes. Yeah. They don't have passports, so you can't figure it out that easily. But yes, they do. And they change the rules. So Jews now cannot return within four months of the first set of 15 days. And there's jail if you uh, break the rules. How is it controlled? They, they used to patrol the streets and ask Jews how long you've been in there for? Well, it's simply the fact that, as I said, there are not many of them. So it's not they that hard, out. and they are dealing with wealthy people, so they are prominent. Well, what generally is the relationship between the Jews and the non-Jews there? I mean, the, the way it sounds, that they only met in a bank, they only met over money. So on the social side, in 1424, the city forbids relations between Jewish men and Christian women, and they... Um, they actually set the penalty according to the status of the Christian woman, meaning if she were, um, so to speak, a lady of the night, then the Jew would pay a fine of 500 lira and spend six months in jail. And if it is an, uh, an ordinary Christian woman, you still have to pay the same 500 lira, but the jail is for a full year. And you see from this that since the jail sentence and not the monetary fine is doubled, it's not the financial considerations that are primary, but the mingling of Jews with non-Jews. So at some level, it must have been happening. They wouldn't have to legislate against it otherwise. And then they do the same in the reverse for, for Jewish women. Uh, Jews, Jewish women now have to also wear identifiable clothing so that Christian men wouldn't have relations with them and, as they put it, produce a child who would be Jewish. That doesn't mean that the Senate recognizes halacha, that a child follows the mother, that it's matrilineal descent. It's basically the fact that the woman, and in this case, therefore, the Jewish woman, rather than the Christian man, would raise the child. So you've got a child who would end up being a Jew, and that doesn't go down well. So they put a lot of effort into solving the intermarriage issue. Yeah, I wouldn't call it into marriage, but yes. <laughs> yeah. And what about other matters? Did the city get involved in the in the lives of the Jews? or It depends um, what areas. I mean, one important area where they did actually become quite intrusive, even though they have originally invited the Jews in, uh, the Venetians forbid them openly carrying out Judaism. So in the early 1400s, they don't allow non-Jews to rent out property to Jews for use as a, a shul. And if it happened and Jews held services in these places, then both the Christian landlord and the Jewish tenant would be jailed for a year. Eventually, it changes with lots of money changing hands, and they would be allowed to, as they put it, praise God with psalms according to their laws, as long as there were no more than 10 people present. You could have exactly a minion. That's quite kind of them. <laughs> well, it means that they understand practically that Jews are going to need this. It's interesting that for the 100 years, or at least 60 years before that, Either the Mignonum had been clandestine or 
Drews hadn't been davening in a minion. So once again, you know, there's no structure in place. And other mitzvahs? Like, did Jews have to hide? Doing So um, they can't carry out bris mila, circumcision, in the city. They can go to the mainland, to Mestre. Um, and there is a story attached to this. Don't know if it's true or not, that, you know, a, a wealthy Jew had just become a father and he wanted to get around this prohibition. So he has a Christian friend who is invited to become the sunduk. You know, whether this would actually be the case, uh, maybe. But since the Christian was bedridden, he couldn't come to Mestre, so he asks the Jew to bring the baby to him on the island. And this brings about the end of the prohibition. Maybe. It's an interesting story anyway. In 1492, for the very first time, we have mention of a Jewish community. You have two Jews, Mendel and Unschel. So you can see clearly that the majority of Jews involved in this were by now not Italian Jews, but uh, German Jews. They came to the government in the name of the Jewish community living in the city of Venice and other cities. There must have been some set up by then. And by 1503, Mestre has shawls. Venice allows Jews in their houses to recite their prayers, to say grace before and after meals. This is taken basically from their Christian understanding of grace, because for the Christians, before the meal is when you really sort of praise God, so to speak. Uh, They're allowed to hold services for the deceased and weddings and bris. In fact, one of the reasons for creating the ghetto in 1516 was that the Christians said it's shameful that Jews had shuls, synagogues all over the city where they said their prayers and which Christian men and women even attended at times to, to sort of see what's going on. So you're saying during all this time, they weren't actually living in a ghetto. They were all over. Yep. In other words, they have regulations to live by, marked clothing, but they're not under lock and key, and they are moving about within the city. And when did that change? When were they put in a ghetto? Why? So in 1509... The Pope and Maximilian, the Emperor, and the kings of Spain, of France, various um, countries, um, united against Venice in the League of Cambrai. Just gives you an idea, by the way, of how powerful Venice was at the time, that all of these countries are uh, putting up a fight against them and that Venice is prepared to enter into the fight. Although, in this case, the Venetian army is defeated and the League... Um, overruns the uh, holdings of Venice on the mainland. And they are now in Mestre. They're across the lagoon from the city of Venice. Why was it so powerful? Because they did, they traded and they had an empire. We'll come to this later and a little bit more next week. Um, They, because money was important to them, they poured that into building up what you could call an empire maritime empire on the on the sea so once the mainland is overrun although it would be temporary but once this happens many of the inhabitants flee for safety to the island of venice amongst whom are jewish moneylenders and they have a 10-year charter from 1503 which gives them the right to come to venice in case of war to protect themselves and the pledges that Christians had put into their hands. 
So as soon as it's possible, the Venetian government tells all the refugees, okay, you know, now time to go home. But they realize that having the Jews stay in the city will be very convenient because they have an empty treasury and they can tax the Jews. And so, you know, there's something worthwhile in keeping them on. And in 1513, they get another 10-year charter. Um, but they're not happy, as I mentioned, with Jews being all over the city. It's not a, a neat solution. So they create a ghetto. I mean, it, it is a bit simplistic, the, the sort of the explanation I gave. It's not just because of the war. It was also church-driven. The church said that ghetto was punished losing the war because they had Christ killers living amongst them, even if it's on the mainland. And therefore, the compromise solution was, rather than getting rid of them altogether, we'll isolate them. And in fact, there were occasions after the ghetto was created where it looked as if the Jews would be forced to leave altogether in uh, 1519, 1527, 1565. But in the end, the same reason that led to their admission in the 1300s, money secures their residence in the city continuously from 1509 uh, until the end of the Republic in, in 1797, until Napoleon comes to town. And so it's true to say that if not for the disastrous war which Venice lost and which got the Jews to flee to Venice for safety, the Venetian government might never have officially authorized the Jews to settle in the city. But as a result, they do, and they're there for 300 years. And the ghetto, in a way, belongs to the Jews, although they couldn't own any of the buildings. They weren't allowed to own property. But the walls offer physical protection and uh, social distance from the non-Jews. And because Jews couldn't own houses, they used their money commercially on, on, on loans. So that is how the ghetto is created and why it's created. It's different, as we said, to many other places in Europe. But soon, two other groups of Jews would want to come to this ghetto, and it would be a real challenge in each case. The Levantines, the, the, from, the Jews from the East, and the Muranos. And how would Venice deal with these issues? I'm guessing that's all for next week. Next week, yes. And also next week, we look at certain personalities, power struggles, Kabbalah, and the government. Uh, but just before we sign off, we looked at Venice. I'd like to briefly look at one of Venice's territories, which was part of the Venetian Republic, the island of Crete, where Jews would actually live for 750 years, um, and which was ruled by Venice for 450 years or so. Uh, just a little insight into Jewish life on the island. Uh, the uh, full description would need a podcast of its own. But in the Fourth Crusade in 1204, the Crusaders conquer Constantinople. It wasn't called that at the time. They overthrow the emperor and the, they uh, divide the Byzantine territory amongst themselves. And the largest beneficiary was Venice because they can now control many of the ports that they use as stopping off points for their trade. So they can now cut out the middleman, they can save on taxes, things happen more quickly. And the island, it's worth looking up on a map, is in a very strategic location. It meets three seas, uh, the Ionian, the Aegean, and the Mediterranean. You have Turkey to the right, Greece above, Italy to the left, Africa below. It's perfectly located. So that 
despite its size, it's very important given that Venice was a maritime empire. And Druze are there early on, both from the west and the east. In fact, you have three different religious groups. Uh, you have uh, Greek Christians and Latin Christians who are very different to each other and Jews. And we have records which date back to the Middle Ages of what the community called Taconus, rulings for their members to follow, but they weren't necessarily generated by the rabbi. In fact, to some degree, they are ignoring the rabbinic setup. And it's interesting just how much the local community used the intervention of the non-Jewish government in Venice for internal policy and politics, even the, the election of uh, synagogue officials. So much so that you have a truva written, I think by Rebus of Kaspali, in the mid-1400s, who castigates the Kehilla for appealing to non-Jewish courts. And he's not talking about a business issue or even a social one, but the appointment of a chazan to the shul. They ask the non-Jews to rule who was the better candidate. I'm not sure if they asked them for a tryout, uh, but they get them involved. Why was this happening? So it is part of a much broader picture, but it appears that they felt uh, that this is the best way for a Jewish community, which is outnumbered by two other Christian communities, to be in good grace with the government. And in May 1363, there is a Sicilian Jew who's been living in Candia, which is the capital of Crete, Heraklion. He accuses the Jewish community of tremendous negligence in halacha. And a so-called takona is made to stop this Sicilian slander from affecting the Kehillah's reputation. And they say he has to be forced to leave town and not given any lodging. And not only should they use the secular authorities to pursue justice, but the Jewish lay leader, who's called the Condes Tabulo, would not be considered an informer if he gets the government involved, which is very unusual in Nahalacha. And they go as far as to decree that if this Jewish lay leader does not turn over the Sicilian Jew to the Venetian government, he himself would be publicly shamed before in front of the Jewish community for avoiding his duty. So, uh, you know, it's an unusual setup. But perhaps to finish with the most unusual Takona in Crete, I believe by far, for many years, the walls of the city made up the Eruv. But in 1363, the leadership decides to abolish this. Why? So Shabbos is a day where Jews gather together. And they may end up disagreeing amongst themselves and beginning a fight. And this verbal brawl could escalate even beyond fistfights. And the community leaders were afraid that Jews might carry and fight with weapons. I'll, I'll quote the Takana, which was originally written in Hebrew. In case anyone goes home to get a sword, a cherev, or a spear, a chanis, to stir up conflict, if there were an allowance to carry them on Shabbos. So we've put in place an Issa prohibition of carrying on Shabbos, and Shabbos will remain observed respectfully. So just when you thought you'd heard all the reasons why an Erev should be invalidated, this has got to be the most unique reason. 
It's a bit of damned if you do, damned if you don't with an air of you just can't you just can't win. Um Well, it depends on circumstances, I guess. Okay, thank you very much, Ariash. It's definitely given another reason to go to Venice. I almost want to go back again, knowing the rich history, as you put it. So thank you very much. Is this a two-part series? Yes. Fantastic. So we'll see you next week. Thank you again. And as usual, do follow and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening from. And you can always email podcast at jaylee.org.uk with your recommendations. We enjoy receiving the emails. And just a quick note on the Geniza tour. We are now fully sold out, which happened very quickly. And we'll probably have to do another one, Rabbi Hirsch, if that's okay with you, because there has been significant demand for another one. So if you are still interested, there is a way of getting a trip in the future. So do email podcast at jaylee.org.uk and hopefully we'll have space on the next one. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you. Thank you.